Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Red Leg Nation Radio, the official podcast of RedLegNation.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Red Leg Nation Radio, our second episode of the podcast here. I'm Chad Dotson. I'm your host for Red Leg Nation Radio podcast, and I'm also the founder and one of the editors at RedLegNation.com, a little website we run that we use every day to spend obsessing over every little detail of the Cincinnati Reds. You know, really, we're not proud of it, but that's what we do. So if you enjoy obsessing over the Reds as well, or even if you just want to check in what's going on with the team, feel free to come on by RedLegNation.com and join in the conversation there. If you heard our last episode of Red Leg Nation Radio, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Thomas Pauley that one of our other editors, Bill Lack, conducted with, with Mr. Pauley down in Sarasota where he's pitching for the Sarasota Reds and the Reds' high A team. It was, a, I thought, a fascinating interview about a guy who was a second-round pick of the Reds and really at the top of a lot of prospect lists and has had some injury problems and now is fighting his way back to those lists. Uh, just a really a delightful young man, a graduate of Princeton, and we're wishing him all the best of luck. He's one of our spotlight players at RedLegNation.com. He's going to keep us updated with what's going on in his push to get to the major leagues. Uh, later on this podcast, we're going to present to you an interview that I really think is the best that we've ever conducted at RedLegNation.com. We've conducted a number of interviews, and this one I'm really, uh, really pleased with how it turned out, and we'll bring that to you in a moment. But first, how about those Reds? You know, here in a year where the Reds have been the worst team in the majors for most of the year, um, certainly the worst team in the National League, all of a sudden, hey, we're in fourth place, uh, past the Astros and percentage points ahead of the Pirates, fourth place in the Central uh, going into the weekend against the Marlins. And as I've said on RedLegNation.com, the comeback is on. Uh, okay, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. But you know, anything's possible in this ridiculous National League Central division. Um, our next Red Leg Nation radio podcast is going to include a roundtable discussion, by the way, between some of the editors at RedLegNation.com. And one of our topics is going to be, here's where we are. What we what can we expect out of the Reds for the rest of this year and into 2007? Should be interesting. I hope you'll tune in and listen to that. And as always, I hope you'll email if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for RedLegNation Radio or RedLegNation.com. Uh, email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at RedLegNation.com. And Subscribe to the Red Leg Nation Radio podcast via iTunes or otherwise. And be sure to catch all the future episodes of Red Leg Nation Radio. 
All right, let's dig right into the meat of this podcast. It's an interview that I mentioned Bill Lack a moment ago. He and I conducted recently with Greg Rhodes. Greg is the Reds team historian, has been for years. He's a recently retired executive director of the Reds Hall of Fame as well. And we caught him just a couple days after he retired and he was getting ready to head out of town. This has just been in the last week or two. Um, if you listen to the Reds on radio, you're going to recognize Greg's voice from this interview. Um, he does the Reds history moments that play before each game. And he was getting ready to record a few of those so he could go out of town and have some to play when uh, when he was gone. Now, he, Greg's written several books on the Reds and really just a fun guy to talk with. I think you'll get that from this interview. Just like us, he's pass, passionate about the Reds and it shows. So let's go ahead and jump right into the interview. Um, hope you enjoy it. Take it away, Bill. This is Bill Lack with Red Bill Lack with Red Leg Nation and Chad Dotson talking with two recently retired executive director of the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum, Greg Rhodes. Greg, thank you for spending time with us today. It is absolutely a pleasure to see you guys. Glad you're down here at Great American Ballpark on an absolutely beautiful day for a baseball game. You're I, I didn't mention that you're also the Reds team historian. Greg, tell us how you initially made contact with the Reds. Was it your books that, that brought you to the to the attention of the ball club? Yeah, well, I, you know, I always joke around, Bill, that if you uh, if you write six Reds books, they'll make you director of the Hall of Fame too. <laughs> uh, but um, yes, that's exactly what happened over time uh, doing the books, and it's this started back in the Marge era. I, I started the first one back. I did the first couple of '94, '95. And Marge was still running the club, and uh, I, I must say I, I've gotten a lot more. I got a lot more cooperation later on, uh, but uh, slowly I came to everybody's attention uh, at the down here, and uh, and when the plans started to evolve for Great American Ballpark, there had been some discussion about a Reds Hall of Fame, and I had been one of the people pushing for that uh, in the in, way back in the early '90s uh, to build a Reds museum. But I wasn't the only one by any means. I mean, people had talked about it. Bob Housen wanted to do something in Old Riverfront Stadium, and there have been other people talking about it over the years. And when the Reds started to do surveys of their season ticket base and so forth, they quickly found out, hey, Hall of Fame and Museum rate really high. And um, so they basically dedicated the build this building for the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum. And I was called in pretty early on to help think about the concepts for the museum, what it might entail. So um, uh, I would say I can't, sort of came to their attention in the late 90s, and then when the museum thing started getting serious, I uh, got more and more involved with them and then became the uh, director in 04. Were you, uh, were you initially the, the team historian? Was that before the Hall of Fame, or what, did it all happen at the same time? It all happened at the same time. John Allen... When I was hired, John gave me both titles. I, had, I did not ask for, nor did I was anticipating, the team historian title. But John said, "We're going to, you know, we want you to be executive director, and we're going to make you team historian at the same time." So that was a nice perk. Uh, I've always joked around. I get if you're the team historian, then whatever you say must be right. You know, it's like it's like it's like I'm so. But then I always get introduced that way, and I always think this is the biggest setup for a trivia question. I will not know the answer to, because that happens frequently as well. But uh, so yes, yeah, so I've carried both titles, and uh, when I decided to retire from step down from the executive director role, I, I wanted to stay involved with the club. They wanted me to stay involved, and so the natural thing to do was just to keep the team historian title, and I'll continue to do some work as it relates to that. You mentioned you mentioned the Hall of Fame before and, and Riverfront. 
didn't at one period of time weren't the plaques out like in center field at, at Riverfront? Well, actually, if you go back, the Reds Hall of Fame started in 1958. So originally, they were actually at Crosley Field. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether you guys both saw games at Crosley Field, but uh, they certainly that's where they were to start with. And they never really had a dedicated space at Crosley Field for them either. They put them up. And the only reason I know this is because I don't remember them as a kid going down there, but I've seen photographs of it. They actually had them uh, attached to the grandstand beams underneath the main stands down in the concession area. And they were, you know, there was Ernie Lombardi's plaque, there was Paul Derringer's plaque, and that's where the plaques were. Well, when they moved to Riverfront Stadium, they took the plaques with them, and they had plans to build a Hall of Fame area out in the stadium club. Uh, which never, as it turned out, in the entire 30 years, never got off the ground because it required the Reds and the Bengals agreeing on something, which, as you recall, never during the Riverfront years, they couldn't agree on the time of day, let alone how to do that. So uh, that just, it never happened. So every year they would induct a guy, they'd make the plaque, they'd give the player a plaque, and they would keep a duplicate plaque in storage at Riverfront, but they never really went on any kind of permanent display. So it wasn't until we opened the Hall of Fame in 2004 that we now have a dedicated space for the Hall of Fame plaques. How long did it take from, I guess, the initial concept of, hey, we're really going to have a building here for the Hall of Fame uh, to the point where you were able to open it? Can you take us sort of from the, the concept and all the way through the opening of it and what it entailed to get to that point? Well, the um, as I said, when the when the initial plans were put together, um, and I give John Allen a lot of credit for this. John, uh, you know, he was hearing from the the ticket holders and fans in the surveys that they wanted a Hall of Fame. So he, uh, when they designed the ballpark, he was insistent upon, and the architect included this this building for the Hall of Fame, which would include the gift shop in the front. So when I got involved, basically we had a building about fifteen thousand. 20,000 square feet of space. Um, well, the, the entire building is about 28,000, of which the gift shop occupies about 6,000. So we had the rest of that space then to sort of as a blank slate. What are we going to What are we going to do with that? Well, we hired uh, Jack Rouse's firm, uh, which is an inter they're, they're a local museum design and uh, exhibit firm, and they do work all around the world. And they've done a number of other sports museums, and uh, so they were hired. And so it was sitting down at the table with them and going through ideas and just sort of brainstorming. And uh, for me, it was I came to the the table with a kind of a list of, you know, well, these are some things we got to do. I mean, for I mean, the big red machine. I mean, that's not a that's a, that's a no brainer. But th th there were some topics and some themes: the 1869 Red Stockings, the home of professional baseball, uh, and so forth. There were just some things we knew we had to do. The club had some uh, definite demands, or, or they had some definite wants, I should say. And one of them was, we, we want to have a really great space to show off the Hall of the uh, not just the Hall of Fame plaques, but the World Series trophies. Uh, and so anyway, so you start bringing all these ideas to the table, and the design firm came, and they had some really cool ideas. And uh, so one thing kind of, you know, it, it, as, it, as, it, as it just sort of grew, it was a question of throwing stuff in and, and putting some ideas down. And uh, another another issue had to do with the traffic flow. How do you kind of how do you work people through the building? Because we have to interact with the game day crowd, and so trying to make sure the traffic flow would work. So uh, we finally finished with a conceptual plan, uh, and that was probably in 2001, 2002, before the ballpark opened. 
Uh, so now comes the 2003, the ballpark opens, and the, where the Hall of Fame sits was on the last pile of the old riverfront, and so uh, the, finally get that cleared away and get the parking garage underneath it, and now this building uh, takes off in 2004. And at that point, when I was called in, the, one of the challenges was we now had a real budget, and there had been some changes in the design of the building, and so we, now we really had to sort of take all those ideas and you know what was going to fit, what wasn't, and especially given the budget, what was going to what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. Um, but we had enough budget to work with. I mean, in in the museum world, uh, three hundred dollars a square foot. That's square foot. Three hundred dollars a square foot is a pretty typical uh, number that you can work with. Let, let me put it this way: that's going to get you a really top-notch facility. You can do it for a lot less than that. But I can remember in a very early meeting, John saying, John Allen again saying. Uh, we got to have a major league museum. We're a major league team. This is major league baseball. We got to have a major league museum. And so, if it's going to take three hundred dollars a square foot to get us something first class, then that's what we got to do. So, you, th you mean do the math? Fifteen thousand, roughly fifteen thousand square feet of exhibits. So the the exhibit budget alone was about four and a half to five million. Um, so you know, the, the club spent a, was willing to spend the money to do it to do it upright. And and you guys have been here enough and seen it. I mean, it really is. It's a great facility. Absolutely. No question about it. This is this is a big tribute to Mr. Lindner, I assume. This was this was when Carl, on Carl's watch, correct? That's right. That's right. Um, the the and, and it would have been easy because there were you know, there was less money for the Reds to deal with because the Bengals uh, stadium had gone over considerably what they were allotted from that uh, tax levy. So the Reds started off with a little less. And then, not surprisingly, they had some cost overruns in, in Great American, too. But John and Carl protected that money. Uh, John Allen and, and Mr. Leonard protected the Hall of Fame space. And so when it, when it came right down to it, it was a, it was a very significant priority for them. And um, I think, you know, from a fan's perspective, it's, it's just a great asset and a great perk for coming down to the ballpark to be able to enjoy the club history the way it's dis displayed here. Are there any other teams that have anything comparable to what we have? There's nothing out there in baseball that's comparable. Uh, there are three or four other clubs that do have space within their building that they have designated as a Hall of Fame or museum space. Uh, Atlanta has one. Uh, Seattle has a small one. I just was out there for the Griffey homecoming game and, and they just opened up a little space on their concourse. Uh, the, you know, it's funny because some teams are in different spaces. They've just started a Hall of Fame in Seattle, and I think they have four members. That, I mean, we have 71, but we got a little longer history than they do. And, of course, some of their really star guys that they would put in a museum, for example, like Randy Johnson and Junior and A-Rod haven't retired yet, so they've got to, they got to put, it'll, it'll grow. Uh, Texas has a small one. Uh, the Baltimore has a, a small one. Um, St. Louis has a small one. So there are some clubs out there that have one. The only other team that I know of in professional sports that has anything that's on a scale that we are are the Green Bay Packers. So the, the Packers have, and, and I would say that's definitely, if you're heading to Wisconsin or live up around that area, uh, that's definitely worth uh, uh, going to see. It's a very nice museum. Let me ask you about, uh, you know, Bill and I have both been here. This is our first time uh, here, obviously. And uh, the first time I went through, personally, it was... I was very impressed with the quality of the exhibits. And could you tell us what it's like to try to gather all the exhibits, and, and how did you go about doing that? And, and yeah, you know, I, um, 
a lot of what you see is on loan. A lot of what you see comes from uh, private collectors, uh, and, and some of them are very serious collectors, high-end collectors, uh, and some of them it's uh, the mom and pops. It's it's grandma's attic, and the kids found something, and you know, would you want it? And sometimes it's a great piece. So you know, that's what you kind of see when you come down here. Now, in addition to that, the Reds did have and did save over the years a number of things. And uh, there, there, there are some really absolutely spectacular pieces like the, our bank of Crosley Field lockers. I mean, to have three lockers from Crosley Field, well, that was great. Uh, and a lot of the plaques that uh, had hung at Crosley Field and later at Riverfront, they had kept some things like that. Um, in addition, a lot of other things. The kinds of things the club did not keep, though, were the things that you would often associate with a baseball museum or baseball displays, balls, bats, uh, gloves, uh, jerseys. For the most part, either that stuff belonged to the players, so the players walked over, they, they kept it, or uh, they recycled the jerseys, which all clubs did. I mean, you would, you would take your major league jerseys and you recycle them down the road for the minor league clubs. So... Uh, the club did not have much of a warehouse, you know, much in the way of that. Um, but over the and, and of course over the years, you move from Crosley to Riverfront, you lose some things. You move from Riverfront into Great American, you lose some things. So, um, but we we were, I mean, given what we got from the Reds, uh, it, it was it was a great, uh, it was enough to start with. But it was also these private collectors that we were able to go to and make contact with that that really filled out the museum. And and to me, it also it's uh, it's it's a, just a great tribute to the fans and the Cincinnati fans that, that that this kind of stuff has been preserved and kept. You just know how important a lot of it is. And like I said, some of it, yeah, it's been bought and sold. Of course, it is. There's a lot of value in it. There's a lot of that commerce that goes on. But there's a surprising number of what I would sort of consider family heirlooms. You know, the things that don't necessarily have a lot of of financial value but just emotional value and the memories within the family and so for people to come and offer that to us to put on display I, that's a great it's it's a tribute to them and and how much the reds mean to people around here you, you've told a story that i've heard about coming up with a banner yeah from our buddy la rosa banner. Yeah, tell that story please yeah um one of the things the Reds, surprisingly enough, over the years did not keep was some of their championship banners. Now, we have all of the banners from the 70s, from the Riverfront era forward, and the 1961 World Series pennant that, that flew at Crosby Field, uh, or the National League pennant, I should say. Those all we had. But prior to 61, we didn't have a thing. The 39 and 40 championships, uh, the 40 World Series, uh, the 1919 pennants. We, we know from photographs, we've got photographs, a 1919 National League pennant, 1919 World Championship banner, and they're both gone. We don't have any idea where they are. Uh, and the odds are, frankly, that there's enough value in those. They would have shown up at some point, I think, if they still existed. Uh, but but out of the blue, we got a call from Buddy La Rosa. The, the, for, and for people who don't live in Cincinnati, La Rosa's Pizza is the big local pizza chain. So Buddy calls, and he's quite a sportsman. Um, and he says, I got something I think you might want to look at for the museum. So we go over there, and he has the 1940 National League pennant. And it's about 26, 28 feet long. The thing is huge. And it's in really in very good condition. Uh, the story behind it was, when Crosley Field was torn down, they had a big auction. So Buddy went over there to buy a Whirlpool tub to donate to his high school alma mater for their locker room. And... Uh, 
piled up in the bottom of the tub were some towels and a tarp and all this stuff, and they just you know put the whole thing on the back of a truck and they haul it over there to the high school and they start unloading it and down underneath all this stuff is this pennant that it was balled up. Buddy said, I had no idea I had just bought it. I'm sure the club didn't realize they had just sold it to me. So he said, you know, it's like, well, what do you do with a 20-foot, 6-foot long uh, banner? And he knew, he, really, he knew how important this thing was. Anyway, he took it home, put it in a duffel bag, and put it in his closet. And he sort of at times had ideas about doing something with it, but just kind of never got around to it. And so for 35 years, roughly, from this has been 71, 72, when Crosley Auction was held up until 2004 when we opened, the thing sat in Buddy's closet in a in a uh, duffel bag, and uh, and so we took it and uh, we had some uh, a little restoration work done on it, and now it hangs very proudly uh, down in the lobby downstairs, and it's just a terrific piece. Uh, great story. I mean, it's just uh, oh, yeah. you can't make that stuff up. One thing we want to talk about a very special exhibit I've got now uh, in just a moment, but I wanted to ask briefly this one thing that I, I was interested in particularly is. You mentioned that the Reds have been inducting players into the Hall of Fame for years, uh, for as long as since 1958. Right. What are the, uh, you know, I guess the induction ceremonies are a little different now that we've got this great facility. And uh, could you tell us a little bit how the induction ceremonies are now and what that? Yeah, and and how they've evolved a little bit. Well, um, originally it was a fan ballot, and they would elect the guys. And uh, yeah, you may hear a little music in the background. They're warming up a band out here on the fan zone. They. they would they would have a fan vote. They would elect the guys. They would they would hold the ceremony on the field down at Crosley or down at Riverfront, and uh, uh, and and that was pretty much it. They'd have an on-field ceremony. In the 70s, they uh, began to hold the induction in the off season. There was an organization in Cincinnati called Ball Players of Yesterday, and it was a it was an organization that was set up to help some of the older ball players out financially who were in trouble. And uh, so ballplayers have yesterday existed for maybe about 30 years or so, kind of its heyday. And uh, at one point, the club decided to hold the Hall of Fame induction in conjunction with the ballplayers of yesterday's dinner, and that was in the off season. And they'd fly the guys in, they'd have a little, uh, they'd have a kind of dinner and a banquet. Then um, in the mid 80s, after Marge bought the club, uh, the interest in the Hall of Fame, she she didn't have. Uh, I don't think it was real high on her priority list. And uh, in the late 80s, there was a, uh, a little bit of a ballot squabble over uh, some ballots that had been uh, uh, submitted that didn't appear to be legitimate. or they, had, they were, It was shades of the old 57 Reds All-Star scandal. Somebody was stuffing the ballot box for one of the players. And so the Reds uh, decided that they, they kind of didn't know what to do with this. And... Um, they made a decision just to not announce any winners for that year, and then they would, you know, presumably do it the next year. Well, um, John Browdy, who was the old uh, Reds, not the old, but he was the PA, a PR guy, NPA guy too, for a while in the late '80s, early '90s. And John um, said the thing that was, he said, none of the writers ask about it. Nobody, it just kind of slipped out of sight. And with Marge's lack of interest in it to begin with, they just kind of, it just sort of faded away. And it wasn't until uh, John Allen took over with the club in the late 90s and uh, a couple of the writers, baseball writers, uh, in talking to him, kind of wondering whatever happened to the Hall of Fame and well, let's get it started again. And so at that point, they restarted it and um, they would again hold the induction on the field. That was the idea. They would Every year they held the induction ceremony on the field. And uh, then when the Hall of Fame opened in 2004, 
uh, we decided uh, at that point, well, when the writers started it up again, they were making the decision, uh, which was fine. They did a good job. They didn't make bad decisions. But when we opened this building, we decided we want to return the vote to the fans again. So then we went back to fan voting and in addition to the on-field ceremony, we also decided to have a big banquet. So we kind of really tried to do it up and make it a big weekend and have these guys in all weekend. We invited all of our Living Hall of Famers back, which had never been done before. They, Whenever they'd have the induction, they would only invite the winners and a few of the local guys to come. But we invited all of them back, which required some significant sponsorship dollars to help underwrite the travel costs. But we tried to get, you know, last year I think we had 20 20 guys in for it. I mean, it, it's a it's a great weekend. Um, our next one will be in 2008. On, on the voting, do you think, and, and I'm, I'm not sure where I'm headed here, by having the fans do the voting, does that favor heavily the newer players and maybe the expense of some some really good older players who, who haven't been selected up to this point? Well, when we, we were very concerned about that because I, there were definitely some guys uh, that were older players that were we felt like had probably been overlooked. And with that 10-year hiatus when there was nobody elected, there were definitely guys that had, that had, uh, had, had should have been elected a long time ago and, and hadn't been. And, and I felt like that, you know, uh, some of our more recent players, and a lot of them were stars from the 90s. I mean, again, we were like Cooperstown. There's a re retirement window. In our case, you have to be retired from baseball for three years. Um, but so we're getting a lot of guys that were stars in the 90s. I mean, Lark the Larkins and uh, Rehos and Eric Davis types. Um, and I just didn't see how... You're exactly right, Bill. I did not see how a guy that played in, let's say, the 60s and 70s, even though he might have been associated with the Big Red Machine, still in this day, you know, trying to compete with the guys from the 1990 championship club in that era, that they were always going to beat those older guys out. So we created a cutoff of 1985. So we basically said any player who retired after 1985 who qualifies for the Reds Hall of Fame would go on the fan ballot. And any player prior to 1985 would be uh, considered, evaluated, and elected by the Veterans Committee, which is our, right, our local chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America. So they handle the veterans guys, and all of the what you would consider the more recent players, the current players, are on the fan ballot, and they're up for the fan vote. Now, if you are on our fan ballot for 10 years and not elected, you fall off of that to the Veterans Committee and then they can look at you. So we, we're giving guys two shots to try to uh, make sure that we that like we, that, that we hit the guys that, you know, hopefully the guys that deserve to get in are going to get in. One thing that we really wanted to ask about is something that's been, uh, I guess, uh, sort of exciting news um, in, the, in Reds, the Reds fan world, which is the new exhibit this year, the Pete Rose exhibit. Yep. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Whose idea Pete. was it? How did that, how did that come about? Well, you know, when we opened the museum, we had a lot of stuff in here about Pete. You guys have seen our 50-foot-high wall of baseballs. Uh, in fact, that, that was one of the, when Pete was on, was it Leno or Letterman show earlier this spring? He made a comment about, they asked about how he liked the new exhibit. And he said, heck, I was just happy with my 50-foot-high wall, you know, 50-foot wall of baseballs. Um, so we obviously had a lot of stuff in here about Pete. We had Pete jerseys and so forth. But there was clearly in our mind an opportunity to do some more and, and as we had gotten to know that some of the local collectors 
they were telling us about all this great stuff they had, and we started sort of thinking in our mind, gosh, we ought to maybe try to uh, open up a little more exhibit space and do something about Pete. Well, um, then the other thing that happened was that we had figured out that we really needed a major space in the museum, someplace where we could, on an annual basis, install a major new exhibit that would hopefully bring people in, give people an excuse to come back, and so forth. So the two ideas kind of came together. We decided to uh, take our main gallery right down on our first floor, right in front of our theater, right when you walk in, and make that the changing exhibit gallery. And, you know, our Pete thing is working off of over here, and we're thinking that that'll be the perfect exhibit to go in there. So that gave us a lot of space to really do a nice bang-up job with Pete and, and get this changing exhibit gallery concept kicked off. So, again, we're out to the local collecting community, and uh, we pulled in some great stuff. Uh, we had a lot of things, including uh, all of the 4,000 hit balls that are on display downstairs. I mean, we have, it's an unbelievable, I mean, when you think about it, in baseball history, there have only been two guys over 4,000 hits. None of Cobb's hit balls are known to exist. And so, uh, beginning in 1985, the Reds Clubhouse guys very smartly said to themselves, history is being made here, so every time Pete gets a hit, starting very early in that 85 season, uh, they'd call timeout, they'd pull the ball off the field, they put it in a manila envelope and wrote the hit number and the date on it, and they kept them in a big box in the clubhouse. And they did that all the way up to 4192. And all of those baseballs uh, were kept. And, uh, in fact, one of the very first things John Allen said to me when I was hired, he said, you know, I, I, I gotta, there's a few things i got to give you here really special, and this is one of them, this big box of baseballs. And the balls were still in the manila envelope. I mean, most of them still were the, still sealed. So uh, that, that's just a phenomenal display to have. I mean, and I think there's about 80, 85 balls in that display. To have 85 hit balls from over 4,000, it's just really, when you think about how significant and rare that is, I mean, I don't. I suppose it'll happen again that somebody will get to 4,000 hits, but it, 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 it sure doesn't happen very often. When, when you were putting the exhibit together, did you have to interface or, or, or clear anything with Major League Baseball because of the suspension situation? Yeah, we did, um, but it turned out really to be a non-story. I, I had thought that we might have a, a, a lot more issues, but John Allen, number one, has very good relationships with Major League Baseball. And uh, when it came time to build this ballpark and to build the museum back in 03 and 04, he, you know, the, the club has the murals in the ballpark with Pete's uh, image on it. It has the 4192 lounge that's, you know, obviously has a Pete Rose connection. They built the Rose Gardens outside. We were going to do the 50-foot high wall balls and some other stuff. And Major League Baseball signed off on all that at that point. So uh, knowing that we already had sort of we kind of the, the battle had already been won in a way as far as being able to include Pete uh, in the ballpark uh, in a display kind of concept, an exhibit setting. So when we went to him and told him, told him we wanted to do this, uh, you know, John, John again, we John was our liaison with Major League Baseball, and it just was a letter uh, said, hey, this is what we've got planned, this is what we want to do, and their only comeback to us was um, we. Uh, we just don't don't open it on on a game. I mean, you, st you still can't honor Pete on the field. We, we still had to, uh, you know, adhere to that. Uh, so we opened it prior to the season opening. We had Pete in here in March for a big opening event. Uh, absolutely no conflict with anything MLB was doing. So they did not. 
the hurdles were not very many and it was not very high. Now, as you know, and as as the publicity suggests, the exhibit ends with 1986. I mean, it ends with his playing career. We do not go into the gambling issue. We did not do that. Now, frankly, I don't know if we had wanted to go there, whether Major League Baseball would have, uh, have been so eager to grant us permission. I don't know. We didn't ask. We decided internally as a staff that the whole thing with Pete, the gambling issue, the Cooperstown issue, the Hall of Fame issue, and so forth, it had just been beat to death for the last 20 years. What, what could we do that would be different or add to the discussion? But what's kind of been forgotten is his playing career and what a great player he is and why he means so much to everybody here. And so we, when we put the concept for the exhibit together, we really made the decision as a staff, we're going to end this, I mean, we're going to take it up through his playing career, and that's what we're going to do. The focus will be on his playing career. I'm sure that made it easier for Major League Baseball to approve it, and for the Reds to approve it, too. So uh, maybe down the road at some other point you might see an exhibit in here about Pete and the gambling issue and trying to treat that in historical perspective, but we very made a conscious decision not to do that at this particular point. Yeah, we were just down there looking at it, and it is it really sort of a celebration of the wonderful career of this unique Cincinnati icon, and I think right. you captured that uh, very right. well. How much, right. if at all, was was Pete allowed to pr participate in? Was it just in terms of the opening? Uh, um, well, we've I mean we have not asked him to do a ton of things, but everything we've asked him to do, he's done. Uh, one of the thing was, I mean, we had some. There were some questions, factual questions that we had about some of the exhibits and some of the text panels and so forth. And the other thing was, out of the blue, uh, in the conversation, he kind of just dropped uh, the notion. He said, you know, I might have some things you guys would want. And uh, we just didn't realize Pete, you know, still had a major collection of things. And it turned out when he had his restaurants down in Florida, uh, one of them I know was closed. I think he had two. I think one's still open. But anyway, the, first, the, the one that's closed, uh, they took all the artifacts out of that and put them down in storage at with the memorabilia company that Pete uh, Mount of Memories that Pete's associated with. So a lot of, when we went down to Florida uh, to to look at this stuff, I mean we were blowing dust off the box. I mean it was real clear nobody had been into this stuff for a long time, and um, we there were just a number of outstanding things that were there. So he's he made he made some things available to us on loan. Um, he was quick to note it was on loan. <laughs> Pete, this stuff looks pretty good. We might want to keep this here. No, boys, that's on loan. Okay. Uh, so um, uh, we ended up with that. And then, uh, as I said, uh, he's, he came in for the grand opening event, participated in that. And he's going to be back for a couple other small events during the course of the summer. How many different items do you have? Do you know? Do you have a number? In the whole museum? No, or? in the Pete Rose exhibit. In the Pete exhibit? Gosh, I don't know. There's probably... I mean, it's it gets skewed because there must be a thousand different baseball cards yeah. on. I mean, not maybe not a thousand, but there's 500 different baseball cards and all the baseballs in that one exhibit we were talking about. But uh, there, there's several hundred items if you start counting all that little stuff. In terms of major pieces that really have some significance, so there's probably 75 to 100, I would guess. How many different contributors? Uh, I bet it's close to two dozen. Uh, there are probably eight or ten major contributors that contributed multiple items, and then there's uh, another, uh, you know, ten or fifteen that threw in a couple pieces here, a couple pieces there, that kind of thing. So, um, but again, I mean, it, 
and, and then we've had other people walk in with stuff after we've been open. I mean, we're going to change out a few cases yeah, I mean, as we I go along. Yeah, I told you about a couple of things that I had. Yeah, yeah. Somebody had already. Yeah. Well, not on Pete Rose. I, I did want to ask, I sort of skipped ahead a little bit, but can you, can you just outline for us some of the different exhibits that you've had uh, since since you opened the museum, and are there any ideas for what, what we're going to have going forward? Or sure. Um, the the we opened with ten galleries, and they were all, you know, they all had different topics and uh, concepts and so forth that we tried to do. Uh, some of it very interactive because we knew, hey, this was going to be a game day attraction. A lot of kids, a lot of families in here, so there's a lot of interactive stuff to do. There's the broadcast booth where I'm sure Chad and Bill have gone up to emulate uh, Marty and Joe up in the booth and called a player to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and there's the uh, the pitching demonstration where you get to throw off the mound 60 feet six inches. Uh, my my one my best story about that uh, exhibit was uh, right before we opened it, we just put the mound in place and uh, Brown, Tom Browning was over here looking at kind of get a little preview of the Hall of Fame and uh, we said hey come on up and try the mound out and everything so he did he threw some pitches and you know it's got the radar gun there and it tells you whether he threw a ball or strike and, and so I said Tom how'd you like it he said you know I said it was really good the mound felt good he said but I think your radar gun's broken he said I'm sure I was throwing 85 and it only said 59 <laughs> But anyway, uh, there's that. There's that. There's, so there's a lot of kids stuff. Uh, there's the tribute to the championship teams, which includes uh, uh, major league. Uh, the, our major league baseball trophies, our three World Series trophies, the uh, the Hall of Fame uh, uh, room with the Hall of Fame plaques. Uh, so there's a number of uh, uh, exhibits that have been in place since we opened that are still there. Then there's some other. Th then the one other major change we've made, in addition to Pete, has been an exhibit that is uh, focuses on the 1919 World Series, uh, and we got some terrific pieces for that, including the final outball of the 1919 World Series, which is uh, probably historically the single most significant item I think that we've had in the museum. Uh, the 4192 ball and bat from Pete's hit is right up there too, but to have the final outball for the 1919 World Series, uh, which had never been on public display before that we are aware of, uh, that was really a coup, and um, as we joke around, we always make sure the doors are locked at night. I mean, that's a very, that very significant ball. Yeah, that's part of that Ed Roush, Ed Roush in the 1919 World Series. Uh, so coming up, uh, Chad, you ask about that, uh, we, next year will be the 50th anniversary of the Reds Hall of Fame. So uh, we're really going to blow out the big induction weekend and do, try to do a lot of stuff with that. But in addition to that, we are going to create, in fact, this is what will replace the Pete exhibit. The Pete exhibit will come down next February and March. And then in, that, in place of that will go the 50th anniversary exhibit to highlight the Hall of Famers. Uh, we do hope that we will be able to keep a few of the Pete pieces and move those upstairs to another exhibit area. So we'll kind of have a little satellite display and, and still keep some of those uh, key Pete items on display. Now that you are a man of leisure, <laughs> Greg, although, Greg although this is yesterday, yesterday and, I'm, and I'm back here doing an interview today, so uh, uh, I, don't, I haven't figured out the leisure part yet. But. How much will you stay involved? Well, as I've mentioned before, uh, I am going to keep this title of team historian, and I do hope that uh, uh, to continue to do speaking engagements, I'll continue to do the uh, 
pregame Hall of Fame highlight moments that are on WLW. Uh, I hope to be able to continue to do things like this, uh, interviews or media uh, work that involves the, the club history. Um, but certainly the new director is going to be the face of the hall and he's going to be the, the, the main guy. And I'll, But I'll be here to assist and to help with that. Uh, we've also, the 50th anniversary, we mentioned that, I think I'll have a a significant role to play in some of the research work on that. So I, it's it's kind of a work in progress, but uh, I think we'll be defining it and we'll be narrowing it down a little bit as we move forward and uh, helping the new director get uh, get his feet on the grounds so with that transition. That's something I'll probably be involved in as well. But um, you know, ask me that question a year from now, we'll probably have a little better feel for how it's actually going to work out. You mentioned the, the pregame, uh, the moments in Red's history that, that you do, and. Um why don't you tell us a little bit about the, your book that you got. Uh. Right. We've got, I'm laughing because I'm going away. My wife and I planned a vacation for July, uh, so we're going to be gone for about almost three weeks. And so I'm looking at the calendar realizing I've got, to, I've got to write and record about 16 of these things between now and Monday before we go on vacation. That's the one part of the Hall of Fame highlights thing that can sometimes get a little uh, challenging. Um, and I must admit that if you're a faithful listener, we do replay a few of them over the course of the season. We don't have 162 new ones every year. Uh, but this will be the third season, and uh, we uh, I'm sitting there looking at the scripts after the first couple of years thinking to myself, is that stacked pretty high? Is it that, you know, wow, this could be a really good, good little book? And because uh, we did all of this while I was under the employee of the Hall of Fame. I, I don't, I mean, I, we, we did this as a Hall of Fame book. This is so all the proceeds go back to benefit the Hall of Fame. Uh, so we found a local publisher who was uh, willing to do it, and um, so we picked the best of the of the two of the two years worth that we had and uh, put them out together and put them out in book form. And uh, the book came out right and actually, as it turned out, the book kind of came out about the same time the Pete exhibit opened. And we made a pretty conscious effort to promote the heck out of the Pete exhibit, and so the book might have slipped under the radar a little bit. But, but it seems to be selling pretty well. It's, it's a very popular purchase here in the Hall of Fame. Since we're talking about the books, and I know this is probably not a fair question. It's kind of like asking someone, you know, which is your favorite child. But do you have one of your a, a favorite book of, of the ones that you've written? Well, you know, I. Um, I, it's funny. I remember hearing an interview with Paul Simon. Now I'm a big Paul Simon fan, and you know, if you ask me what are my favorite Paul Simon songs, I could tell you in a second. Uh, and Paul Simon, somebody asked him, "What are, what are your albums you like the best?" And he said, "The one I'm working on now." And I thought that was a great answer. And as I've done the books, that's exactly the way it has to be. You you almost, you do one, you kind of got to let go of it, and you move on. You do the next one. Now I don't have another one in the works, and I I don't really have anything. Uh, planned. That, that's not the reason I'm retiring uh, in order to do more books or anything. I mean, I don't really have another topic or, an, or another compelling topic. I can think of some things, but nothing that is so compelling I want to get started on it right away. Um, but looking back, I, I guess the one I find myself the most infatuated with is the, is the old Red Stockings, the 1869-70 Red Stockings, and the birth of professional baseball, and how that all happened and here in Cincinnati, and why, and, and the whole sort of baseball milieu back, and the, the context, the historical context. I just find it really a fascinating time period, and a never-ending source of amusement to me to, to continue to read things about it. I mean, as I always tell people, if you went back in time and you watched a game, you would definitely understand it. You would have not have too much trouble following it. But you would certainly be wondering uh, 
you know, why is there only one umpire and why are there carriages parked out in left field and, you know, and all these other weird things that are kind of going on. I, I just, it's just a fascinating uh, period. And also I think the fact that you were dealing with essentially nine or ten guys that made up the team for those two years. It's not like more modern times where you've got a lot more guys and the roster changes a lot more. They, they had the same starting nine and, it, and then one substitute for those two years. So the characters stay the same. You really kind of feel you get to know them. Um, so I think that, that that book and that time period has still resonates with me. And I, I, I find myself when I go to do the Hall of Fame highlights, whenever I, I need a topic, I'll slip back into those 1869 guys because I just find them just to be a never-ending source of stories. One of the things that, that I want to say is if you, if you ever come to Great American Ballpark and you just go to the baseball game and you haven't been to the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum, you're really cheating yourself out of a, of a wonderful time. But if you're going to come on game day, give yourself a minimum of two hours to go through if you want to see and read everything, if not longer. Wouldn't you agree, Chad? Absolutely. And it's worth, it's worth every second. Well, and the other... Uh, I, coming on game day is really is makes the sense for a lot of people, but it also is in terms of your experience in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it gets crowded on game days, and so if you really, it's like going to uh, Cooperstown on induction weekend. If you've ever been up there on induction weekend, it's like you, the the Hall of Fame gets so crowded, it's hard to enjoy it or hard to see everything you want to see. And it's the same way here in those two hours before a game time. So, but it's doable. There's no question about it. You can do it. But I, I sometimes think that if you're really just a diehard Reds fan and you, and you really want to be able to just kind of concentrate and kind of get lost in the museum, um, come on a non-game day, you might have a little more enjoyable time. And if you're a diehard Reds fan and haven't been here, you don't know what you're missing. I think really um, it's, you've done an outstanding job, uh, and, and the Reds have done an outstanding job putting this together, really. It's, it's something to be proud of. Absolutely. So in wrapping up, we want to thank Greg Rhodes for the time he spent with us. And this is uh, Chad Dotson and Bill Lack for Reg Leg Nation. Thanks very much, Thank Greg. you, guys. Good to talk to you. Thank take, you. take care. All right. Many thanks to Greg Rhodes for sitting down with us at the Reds Hall of Fame. Discussing, as you heard, lots of things about the Reds. Uh, I thought that was just a, a great, great interview. Hope you enjoyed it. All right. That's it for this episode of Red Leg Nation Radio. Check in uh, real soon. Subscribe to the podcast. It'll tell you when we, when it's updated with another episode. Until then, email us, chad at redlegnation.com. Let us know what you think. Talk to you later. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.